welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Tuesday, May 7th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, a look at Sanders and his old cable access TV show. A new poll shows Biden pulling support away from pretty much everybody else. And all about Warren's tax proposal on the ultra-wealthy. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up today, from 1986 to 1988, while Bernie Sanders was mayor of Burlington, Vermont, he had his own cable access TV show. And is it on YouTube? Well, you bet it is. It is now, anyway. The show is called Bernie Speaks, The Mayor's Show, and it's a profound time capsule. It is very 1986 to 1988. It aired on Chittenden County's Channel 17, which is the cable access channel for Burlington, Vermont. But not just any cable access channel. CCTV was devoted to government access, so it was looking for content that wasn't just like airing city council meetings and stuff. At Politico magazine, Holly Otterbein did a deep dive on how Sanders created his show, what happens in it, and how that changed him as a politician. Otterbein watched every single episode on tape, which is saying a lot because it aired every week or two for a couple of years, and then her magazine paid to have the shows digitized and put up on YouTube under a Creative Commons license. So now you can go and watch the show too. There are 51 episodes, and there's a link in the show notes if you're curious. Reading now from Otterbein's piece, quote, For dozens of hours, Sanders interviews townspeople and lets them interview him. He gives speeches, but he also does all the day-to-day things a mayor does. He talks with his police chief. He visits the local schools. He chats up elderly constituents. He even plants trees. Well before The Truman Show or reality TV, and even longer before we grew accustomed to learning on Twitter and Facebook what our friends and our celebrities ate for breakfast, Sanders basically made a lo-fi analog attempt at live-streaming his day job. End quote. And having watched a few episodes myself, I have to agree, there is relatively little editing here. It's basically a camera person and Bernie Sanders walking around with a microphone. Anyway, Otterbein goes on to explain that the show actually started on AM radio. It was called The Mayor Speaks, and it aired on WJOY. After the radio show was canceled, Sanders took his message to an even more popular medium, television. Now, in many segments, Sanders rails against television itself while he is making a television show. In one episode near the end of the show's run, he speaks at an event alongside Abby Hoffman and David Dellinger. Dellinger was another member of the Chicago 7. Sanders attributes a line to Hoffman, saying, Television is the major drug problem in America today. Now, he's referring to mass media, to be clear, but he specifically talks about local media, too, which in those days was in the process of consolidating while also exploring new formats on cable. This is one of the rare episodes in which we see Sanders give a speech rather than wandering around and talking to people. Let me play a short segment of that speech in which he talks about a series of ideas that still echo today in the Sanders campaign more than three decades later, although with slightly different points. He talks about the 99%, he talks about presidential politics, and he talks about the influence of money on elections. But more than that, he's talking about the media. Listen to this clip and hear how Sanders has and has not changed since 1988. Some of you may have seen in the free press today that I think it was Champlain Valley Union High School. They had a vote, $5 million bond issue. Headline, should be, 99% of the people say no. 1% of the people came out to vote. 
99% of the people stayed home on a vote of over $5 million. Half the people in America don't vote. In town meeting in Vermont, despite all the media myth, most people have given up on the political process. Headline, American people give up. Say we don't trust any politician. I doubt it. I doubt it. Story today. Jesse Jackson running one of the most courageous presidential campaigns in American history. You're not going to see it. Outspent 10 to 1 in New Hampshire. A black man going to an all-white state, talking about a message of bringing working people together and environmentalists together, attempting to build a, a movement that this country desperately needs. It is a story of tremendous heroism, of huge numbers of people trying to do something extraordinary with no money, taking on the whole world. It's a story that they'll write about 50 years from today. Today, it's hard to see Jesse on the news when you've got people spending $20 million buying it, buying the presidency. I think what I would conclude with is simply this. The media itself, and I want to congratulate the Vanguard for hosting this thing tonight, the media itself is as important a political issue as exists. There's a link in the show notes to the entire speech for full context. Note that when he thanks the Vanguard near the end, he's talking about the Vanguard Press, which is the local alt-weekly paper that sponsored the event. And, by the way, he wasn't always praising those folks either. Now, one more vital segment from the Otterbein piece. Quote, Jeff Weaver, a longtime advisor and friend to Sanders, says the experience of making Bernie Sanders speaks with the community taught Sanders how to use his homebrew media to win policy fights, too. Sanders used the show to make the case for an array of left-wing proposals, from a progressive income tax to a national health care system. He proposed a new kind of loan that would allow elderly people to put off paying property taxes until they sold their home promoted his administration's decision to put a local hospital on the property tax rolls, and demanded that condominium developers build more affordable housing. When Bernie Sanders became mayor, he took on the entirety of the local establishment. The local mainstream media was dead set against him, says Weaver, who was the campaign manager for Sanders' 2016 run for the White House. I think he understood correctly that if he was going to have a way to talk directly to people about what he was trying to accomplish in Burlington, he was going to have to do that himself, end quote. So read the article for more analysis on how Sanders has used media over the decades and how that experience changed as he sought ever higher offices. Now, the other fun thing is that Otterbein pulls out some of the quirkiest moments from the show. And this is notable not just because they're funny, although they are, but because they reveal a side of Sanders we don't see as often today. There is a goofy side. He tries out riding a horse in one episode. He hangs out with punk teens in a shopping mall in another. And whether you're a Sanders supporter or not, there is now a treasure trove of his early media online, and it's worth watching, or at least reading Otterbein's summary, to understand how that experience shaped his attitudes toward the media today. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. 
So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. In a new morning consult poll released late yesterday, we get our latest look at what's going on in the primary field. This will not be a surprise to anyone, but Joe Biden is doing great at 40%, and his high level of support comes at the expense of other top candidates in the field. So there are several ways to look at this poll. One is that if you take all of Joe Biden's support, it is the same as the next four candidates combined. Those candidates are Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, and Pete Buttigieg. Another way to look at it is by seeing how the numbers have changed since the previous week's polling. On Twitter, Steve Kornacki did that math for us. In his tweet, he shows that Biden is up four points from last week, Sanders is down three, Warren is down one, Buttigieg is down two, and everybody else in the top eight spots is unchanged. Others, much lower down in the ranking, gain or lose a point here or there. Kornacki also points out that Biden is polling better among black voters than white voters. This is a key constituency for Democrats, and it lines up with our coverage last week when hearing about black voters in Pennsylvania. The last point from Kornacki is that this is the second week in a row that Buttigieg has lost ground, and that comes after five weeks in a row gaining points. So this is the part of every polling segment where I say, hey, it's super early, and the polling at this stage mostly reflects name recognition. Well, good news. Morning Consult also did polling on name recognition specifically. Check the link in the show notes to see that in great detail. They break down those results by candidate into four categories, which are favorable, heard of but no opinion, never heard of, and unfavorable. Right now, Bernie Sanders has the highest unfavorable rating at 18%, but he also has a massive favorable rating of 73%. He is beaten in favorability only by Biden, who gets 76%, but Biden also has a 15% unfavorable rating. So basically, these two candidates are the same. Statistically, they're very, very close in terms of favorability and unfavorability, and everybody has heard of them. One more takeaway from this poll has to do with the number of candidates where voters either have heard of the candidate but don't have an opinion, or they've simply never heard of the candidate at all. Now, this is where the debates and the media and ads will play a key role over the coming months. Now, for instance, take a candidate like Amy Klobuchar, who is in the middle of the pack in that favorability poll. She has a 30% favorable rating, an 11% unfavorable rating, but just under 60% of people either haven't heard of her or have no opinion. So in theory, that's enough for her to beat the top candidates if she becomes well-known and captures that big chunk of people who don't know her. The same is true for a bunch of other candidates. The two big ones to watch for are Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris, who are right up there behind Sanders and Biden. They have enough of that unknown gap in the middle that they could catch up rather quickly if voters were exposed to them and if those voters liked what they heard. I've covered a few of Senator Elizabeth Warren's policy plans on this show, and in each case, she has specified the cost of the policy and how she would pay for it. For the most part, she proposes to pay for new policies by taxing the assets held by ultra-wealthy Americans. But what does that mean, and how does that work, and does that affect you and me? 
Well, fortunately, Warren has laid out all of those details and put the plan together with the help of economists who were legitimate experts in the field. So here's how Warren's plan would work. It's important first to be clear that this is not an income tax. Most of us are used to paying income tax on our paychecks. Instead, Warren is saying, let's tax the stuff you already own if you're wealthy. Got it? Okay. So let's say your household owns assets worth more than $50 million. First off, congratulations, you're doing awesome. Welcome to the 0.1% of Americans. Second, Warren wants to impose a 2% annual tax on any assets you have over $50 million. So if you have precisely 50 million bucks worth of mansions and stocks and yachts and stuff, nothing changes for you. Same if you have less than 50 million bucks. But let's imagine you have $51 million worth of stuff. Now you're going to pay 2% of that $1 million overage, the amount over $50 million. And you're going to pay it every year. So grabbing my calculator here, that's a bill of $20,000. So your family's taxes, if your family has $51 million worth of assets, would go up by $20,000 per year. So that's the main part. There is a second tier to Warren's plan, though. If you have more than $1 billion, you'd pay that 2% rate on all the assets from $50 million up to $999.99 million, and then, boom, now you're paying 3% on every dollar over that first billion dollars. This is a form of progressive taxation, meaning that as your net worth rises, the higher tiers of wealth have more tax applied to them. It progresses in the same way your wealth does, affecting wealthier people more than the rest of us. Okay, so economists estimate that the 2% tax would affect about 75,000 households in the U.S. And the 3% tax, the billionaire tax, would affect fewer than 1,000 households. In other words, America has fewer than 1,000 billionaires, and Warren would like them to pay a little more. So what's the core logic behind this kind of plan? Well, it has to do with what's called an effective tax burden, which basically means the actual percentage you pay in taxes when compared to the stuff you have in the income you make. Reading from an article in Barron's, quote, The basic argument for the tax is that it addresses an inequity in the existing system. The ultra-rich pay lower effective tax rates than many other Americans because their income takes the form of rising asset values. The tax rate on capital gains is much lower than what the typical worker pays on his or her labor income. But those gains are taxed only when assets are sold, so many of the richest people minimize their tax burden even further by borrowing against their wealth. According to economist Gabriel Zuckman, the proposed tax would raise the total effective burden at the very top of the distribution from 3.2% of net worth to 4.3%. This tax obligation would still be lower than the average burden of 7.2% of net worth paid by most other Americans. End quote. One important note there, Gabriel Zuckman was a key part of the team that designed Warren's tax plan. He is also, according to Barron's, quote, one of the world's experts on the economics of international tax avoidance and tax evasion, end quote. We'll get back to why that matters in a moment. All right, so how would the government figure out what assets you have and actually tax them? Like, if I were a billionaire, wouldn't I find out some kind of cool way to get around this? Well, Warren and Zuckman and the rest of their team have thought about that challenge a lot. 
For one thing, ultra-wealthy people tend to have two broad classes of assets. Real estate, which is already subject to property tax and is pretty hard to hide because it is physical, you know, like houses and stuff. And the other item is investment portfolios. That is where it gets interesting. I would have thought those investments would be easy to hide or obscure or do some weird tricks with. But reading from Barron's again, quote, Zuckman estimates that roughly 80% of the assets of the ultra-rich are in liquid assets with unambiguous market values. Even those who drop hundreds of millions of dollars on apartments allocate less than a tenth of their overall asset portfolio to real estate. Besides, growing databases of real estate transactions and listings should make it easier to assess valuations in real time in an unbiased manner. End quote. And that's where Zuckman's experience in tax evasion becomes very useful. He knows how people today get around this stuff and designed the program to deal with it. The program would beef up the IRS's ability to spot this specific money moving offshore. Remember, we're dealing with a known set of households and not very many of them. Also, if a very wealthy person tries to renounce their U.S. citizenship and move away, that's fine. Warren's plan would take 40% of their wealth, above $50 million, on their way out of the country. One last thing on this plan and the thinking behind it. As the New York Times reminds us, Chris Rock has a stand-up bit about the distinction between being rich and being wealthy. And it helps remind us that there is a difference. Quoting Chris Rock here, People go, what's the difference? Well, here's the difference. Shaq is rich. The white man that signs his check is wealthy. End quote. And that's a key idea here to end this segment. The Warren plan is designed to tax wealth, the kind of wealth that is held by the 0.1% of people who own, say, basketball teams or giant businesses or whatever. This proposal is not about taxing income, not even rich people's income. In other words, the taxes on Shaq's paycheck aren't going to change. Only when Shaq grows a fortune to the point where he's wealthy and maybe, like, owns the team would Warren's plan actually affect him. Well, that's it for another episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Coming up later this week... More from Kamala Harris on the trail. Likely some new candidates entering the race. Yes, even now. A bunch of analysis about how the DNC is going to deal with this giant field and the 20-person cap on the debates. And even more. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow. Tomorrow.